I'm Tina Tang, an equities trader turned jewelry designer turned strength coach for women over 40. This podcast is my survival guide to health over 40, where I'll share things I wish my mom had told me, and where I'll interview experts to give us guidance about aging well. Check in every week for my newest episode. Welcome back. Today, my guest is Dr. Melanie Yanez, who is a doctor of physical therapy and the owner of Best Self Wellness. She specializes in women's pelvic health and provides in-home physical therapy services for people in Hudson County. And today we're covering the topic of genitor urinary syndrome of menopause. I'm so sorry, I can't pronounce this correctly. I'm sure if you guys saw it spelled out, you know what I was talking about. But it's uh, the abbreviation is GSM. And it's a term used to describe a group of symptoms that affect the genital and urinary tracts in women who have gone through menopause. And specifically, the symptoms that someone might feel would be vaginal dryness, itching, burning, pain during intercourse, urinary urgency and frequency, and frequent UTIs, urinary tract infections. GSM occurs because of declining levels of estrogen uh, that happens during menopause, which can lead to the thinning and dryness of the vaginal walls, and then that in turn causes changes in the tissues of the urinary tract. About 50% of women experience some of the symptoms of GSM. Today, we've got Dr. Yanez to help talk about these symptoms and things that you can do about Dr. Yanez or Melanie, what is a pelvic floor therapist and what do you help women with? Yeah, so a pelvic floor physical therapist is just like any other physical therapist. We're licensed in our states. Uh, we go through the schooling. A majority of us have our doctorates and we're learning about the entire body. But when we specialize in pelvic health, we're specifically concentrating our education on the reproductive system, the urinary system, and specifically the pelvic floor muscles, which are a set of muscles that are in the bottom of our pelvis that control uh, urination and bowel movements. It controls the, you know, the sphincters um, and it controls also stability as well as gives us our body a lot of support as well. And obviously it's also good for um, needed for sexual function as well. So we predominantly treat both men and women, even though a lot of people think that this is just purely a women's issue. Um, but we do treat both men and women because both men and women also have pelvic floors. Uh, that's actually really helpful to know because I think we do think of it as women only. But um, when you said with men, I know this is slightly off topic. Can you describe some of the issues that a, sure. a man would have if they were having pelvic floor issues? Absolutely. Um, so pelvic pain is a, is the big one, right? But also having your, they can also have urinary leakage, but also difficulty with emptying their bladder, as well as having constipation issues, hemorrhoids, things like that. And then we also are treating erectile dysfunction as well. That's interesting. So for both men and women, similar mm -hmm. issues caused by uh, pelvic floor. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So let's go into the, the first question that what you mentioned about urinary leakage. This does happen for a lot of women post-pregnancy and then I guess post-menopause. Can you describe it, like signs of it? Sure. Why it happens? Good. Absolutely. Uh, when we are thinking of urinary leakage or urinary incontinence, it's defined by just any moment of involuntary escape of urine, right? So it can range from a dribble or it can range from a full uh, full flow. 
when we're talking about uh, hormonal changes, and so um, postmenopausal or even perimenopausal, our estrogen levels are declining, or sometimes they're just the balance is off between progesterone and, and estrogen, things like that. That creates tissue changes because estrogen is there for the lining of all of our tissue. And it also creates the bulking in our tissue, um, which would be our muscles. So it can create a weakness in our pelvic floor muscles, causing some of that urine to escape involuntarily. But the biggest part to remember is that there's a genetic factor as well as a hormonal factor that, that affect our pelvic floor muscles. But there's also the other part of uh, our own physiological issues or our own habits. So when I say hormonal and when I say genetic, I don't want people to think that there's nothing they can do about it, but it just means that there's certain factors that are going to predispose us to having a lot of these genitourinary symptoms. Oh, that's very helpful yeah. to know. So it's not necessarily, sometimes there's things you can do, but sometimes it's like, it's part of your genetics, but you still can do something about it. Exactly. You know, same, so, you know, the same issue is that some women, like all women are going to go through some sort of uh, hormonal change, but it all is going to present differently in all of us. So for some women, depending on what their genetic factors are, will be predisposed to having urinary leakage, prolapse, I know we're going to talk about later, things like that. Whereas other women may have not any of those issues, but then have maybe more digestive issues, sleep issues, stress issues, right? So there's things that will predispose us to certain uh, syndromes and dysfunctions, but then it also means that there's things that we can do. So for the women that it predisposes, uh, we're predisposed to urinary leakage, we just have to work a little bit harder and be a little bit more... Uh, cognizant of how we're functioning. Can we talk about leakage? Because I know we're talking about mm -hmm. it in a very general term, but I want to just put it in um, maybe yeah. everyday practical terms. Yep. That means um, having pee come out if you're mm -hmm. jump roping. Uh, I remember a, a friend who had, after her yep. kid, running across the street to like mm -hmm. whatever, get to the other side. Absolutely. Working out. Sneezing, coughing, things laughing. like that. Laughing. Exactly. Yeah. So when we're talking about urinary leakage, there's two types, stress urinary incontinence and urge urinary incontinence. Those are the two main factors, other types, but those are the two that will affect uh, perimenopause, menopausal women. And so when we're talking about stress urinary incontinence, it means that the leakage is coming due to an action. So we've sneezed, coughed, jumped, run, ran. When it comes to urge urinary incontinence, it has to do with, I have an urge to go to the bathroom. I'm unable to make it to the bathroom in time. And then your third type is just having a mix of both. But when we talk about both of those, habits and posture, lifestyle is going to be the biggest things that we can affect and change immediately. So when it comes to stress urinary incontinence, it has to do with downward pressure onto our bladder. So maybe someone is sneezing and coughing and their belly is protruding outwards and pushing onto that. Or um, we're jumping and we're having weakness in our hips 
And when we land, our hips aren't there to stabilize us. And so our pelvic floor muscles take a brunt of it. And then we're creating downward pressure into our pelvic floor and causing some leakage and some escape. So when we, when we work on strengthening uh, posture and mechanics of how we move, we can create immediate changes in our stress urinary incontinence. Uh, that's so interesting because I've even had friends say, oh, I started now when I laugh, LP, what would be, so question one would be, how do you know that's an issue? Like if it happens every once in a while? And then number two, what kind of posture changes can you help for that? Because that seems to be the most common one I hear about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to um, laughing, a lot of times it has to just do with like a like we're big belly laughing. Maybe we're creating a downward pressure into our bladder, things like that. Um, and so the posture is if we're slouched and laughing, or we're just you know we're not really um, working on our core strength aside, you know, if there's like some sort of core weakness that can definitely cause some leakage. When it's a problem, when you have to pee, like how often, like how often is it happening that it's a quote unquote problem? Sure. So when it comes to when is this a problem? It's a problem whenever you decide it's a problem is what I want people to understand. So if you laugh once or twice, and then it never happens again, maybe it doesn't feel like a problem to you. It wouldn't be bad to still see us, see a pelvic floor physical therapist. But if it's once or twice, you know, and then it goes away, never happens again, uh, then it's not a problem. But if it's happening continuously, when you're bot- when you're deeming that this is now creating a dysfunction in my life, or now I'm too scared to laugh, I'm trying to alter how I laugh because I'm scared to pee my pants. That's when it's a problem. That's when you come see us, right? Yeah. Right. And then there's some women like in the other extreme where I've seen a female lifter having leakage, Mm -hmm. right? In the video, she commented how she didn't care and was very into that, (laughs) That's not a problem for her. So she doesn't need to come see me, right? So this is this is where um, I want people to understand it's a problem when you feel like it's a problem. It's very helpful. There's no like medical term of when something is a problem. It's really exactly. about when it's a problem for you. Yeah. It's the same way of treating other menopause symptoms. It's Absolutely. It affects your life. Right. And that's the biggest thing I want people to understand is that if there's anything that is um, creating a change in their life and they have to adjust their life due to that issue, that's when you can come see us. Okay. That's really great to know. And while I know this is hard to explain a remedy just all in one podcast, can you give an example of what for example, someone who's a lifter that doesn't want to be leaking while she's squatting mm-hmm. or deadlifting, yeah. an example of what one of your treatments or that you'd work on with the patient. Absolutely. So we're looking at, I'm looking at them orthopedically because our pelvic floor muscles should be a 
support and stabilizer, but shouldn't be the main support and stabilizer of our body mm. and of our pelvis. So if they're having glute weakness, I'm working on strengthening their glutes. If they have core weakness, I'm working on strengthening their core. So there should be still a very strong orthopedic background um, and an orthopedic assessment done. And a lot of my workouts and my, a lot of my treatment, a lot of times, especially with lifters, look like a regular exercise program that maybe someone with back or hip pain might get. But I'm looking at it with a different lens and I'm looking at it, how is their breathing mechanics during it? And then what is their diet like on top of that, right? So are they having a lot of caffeine, pre-workout, things like that, that may be irritating their bladder, causing them to either have strong urges or causing irritation to the bladder that might be causing them to leak a little bit more. Too. It's interesting. I would not have considered diet as one, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What about for post-pregnancy or and the other types of leakage where it's the laughing, coughing, uh, maybe yeah. doing a little bit of just jumping in your life like because you're running across somewhere? Yeah. An it's the same idea. Same mm-hmm. idea. So orthopedic, I'm looking at that, but I'm looking at them posturally. Is their upper back a little rounded and causing that slouch posture onto the bladder. Mm -hmm. I'm still looking at them in terms of uh, how their hips are strength are functioning, because if they're jumping and they have no hip stability, then their pelvic floor is not going to be strong enough to prevent that downward pressure um, onto the bladder. I'm also looking at their pelvic floor muscles. And so a lot of the treatment is going to be an internal assessment if they're okay with it. I think any good pelvic floor physical therapist knows how to treat someone without looking at the pelvic floor, because if a woman has had suffered any trauma or is very uncomfortable with it, we know how to work around that. But if the uh, patient is okay with it, I can get a lot of information from that because the pelvic floor muscles should have some strength to it, but they should also have some pliability to it. And so our pelvic floor muscles should work like a trampoline. So if we're jumping up and down, the pelvic floor muscles need to be able to stretch out to accept the load and then spring back upwards to stabilize and close off the urethra to prevent any leakage. So we're looking at um, definitely hip strength and then as well as uh, pelvic floor mobility and strength with that. That's so helpful to know. And the next question I have is about painful sex, which is becomes a problem for a lot of women post-menopause because of the dryness of the vaginal walls. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about maybe how common this is in your practice and how you help women through that? Yeah. Painful sex is very common. Um, I would probably say uh, 50% of my clients have suffered some sort of painful um, or discomfort during intercourse. Mm-hmm. But I will also say that a majority of those women don't really come to me for that because they don't realize it's an issue. And I think that's a really important part to note because a lot of women, especially when we hit into the perimenopause and menopause stage, think that it's just because they're getting older and there's nothing they can do about it. So my assessment, I'm always asking how Uh, intercourse is feeling or penetration or exams, because that's going to tell me a lot about how their pelvic floor is functioning. 
And so you're right. Estrogen is going to start to decrease when we start get uh, as we get older. And even in the postpartum stage, estrogen levels are decreased. But that's not the entire picture, right? So yes, there's dryness involved, but then there's also that whole mental factor that's uh, that's going along with it. And so estrogen also affects our mood as well. So it can affect libido, but it could also in, uh, increase our anxiety when we're having hormonal um, issues, right? And so if we're having higher anxiety, then also that's going to create some issues with libido as well as discomfort during intercourse. So we have to look at the person as a whole all the time. But also, are they someone who is taking care of their parents, their children, their family? Are they the one focused on creating the schedules and the res- ha- holding all the responsibility? Because that's going to create a lot of tension in their whole entire body. And mm-hmm. so when we're talking about having intimacy, what should happen is that we should be able to relax our pelvic floors, right? Then it's we're going to be able to have a more comfortable time during intercourse. We should also be mentally stimulated and aroused. But if we're having a lot of anxiety around it, if we're fearful of having intercourse, if we're also thinking of our to-do list and checklist, our pelvic floor muscles will not be able to relax. And so that's a big part that I have to be able to explain to a lot of clients is that it's not just about your pelvic floor. It's not just about your hormonal changes. Are you able to uh, cope with a lot of the mental load that you're, that you're holding too? I love that. It's much more of a whole, it's a bigger picture. It isn't just about, oh, hormones are causing this in your body and that's why it hurts. Yeah. That like everything, it's the, every other aspect of your life that's absolutely going to be manifested, maybe just in that area. Yeah. And that this is true for any genitourinary symptom, right? If we're holding too much anxiety, stress, responsibility, our pelvic floor muscles will not be functioning correctly. Our entire body will not function correctly. So if we are stressed out, it tends to develop into urge urinary incontinence. If you're stressed out, it tends to develop into pain during intercourse, right? It all goes together. And so Mm. that's why we have to do a holistic approach. But if we're looking, if we clear all of that out of the way, and let's say they're seeking mental health, they they are feeling good, then when it comes to painful, painful intercourse, then it's definitely looking at their pelvic floor function. So it's, again, an internal exam if they're okay with it um, and consenting to it, but it's seeing, is there any tightness? And our pelvic floor muscles can have knots in their uh, in the body of the muscle, just like our traps get tight and we have to massage yeah. out a knot. The same yeah. way our, you know, our shoulders can get tight, our pelvic floor muscles can also get knots in them. And so then treatment for that is working on relaxing a lot of those pelvic floor muscles through manual therapy, as well as exercises to help stretch them out. And then again, back to the breathing and making sure they're able to um, take a deep breath in to help stretch out that pelvic floor and how to take a really good exhale to help lift up the pelvic floor as well. 
you remind as you were talking about the mental aspect i remember one of my training clients uh, had uh, painful sex and part in in working with a pelvic floor therapist she had learned also some of the trauma she had as a kid was affecting that Absolutely. the the pain uh, yeah. and having to work through that some of the childhood memories let's talk next about utis so I think I can't grasp, like, why does that happen more af- uh, often post-menopause? And what are kind of some things that you recommend for treatment? Yeah. So when it comes to chronic recurrent UTIs, so UTI is essentially anytime bacteria goes from the outside of our vulvar region into our urethra and then up into our bladder, right? So that, that's essentially what's happening with the UTI. When we start to hit hormonal changes, the estrogen is depleted or less. That thins out the tissue. That makes bacteria more susceptible to also being absorbed into our, um, into our urethra. The other part is that there is a huge digestive component coupled with that too because we need to also make sure that we are having the balance of the proper flora in our uh, vaginal canal. And yes, um, you know, taking those probiotics, all of those are going to be helpful, but also ensuring that you're having the right diet, making sure that you are having carbohydrates too. I think a lot of women, um, especially postmenopausal, they think that they should go on less carbs, things like that. Um, but your body actually needs carbs for healing and for tissue development. And so it's actually going to only help the flora as well as our tissue if we're getting the right amount of carbs in. Um, Things like protein, uh, vitamin C, all of that is going to help with our immune system too. And then the last part is also making sure that women do not use any soaps and things like that. I think the whole, you know, Western system has giving these ads for all these skincare products to make our vulvar area and vaginal canal smell like flowers and fruits, but it's actually very damaging, right? Our vaginas should smell like vaginas, right? <laughs> can I qu- that, can we make that? Our you can, absolutely. Our vaginas should smell like vaginas. Our vaginas should not smell like passion fruit and <laughs> jasmine flower that is a whole patriarchal thing, right? That's so that we can please other people. But if we think of it primitively, there is actually a reason why our vaginas need to smell like vaginas because A, it's also like just a uh, pheromone thing, right? So if you do want to attract a partner, they should smell like vaginas. Um, But B, it's also showing the health of our vagina. If there is obviously a foul odor, that means there's infection. But then a regular uh, vaginal odor means that you're having a healthy pH system too, right? So those are the lifestyle changes that people can, that I focus on when they're having recurrent UTIs. Mm -hmm. And then the treatment wise, I'm also still looking at their pelvic floor. And so if there's a tightness, a lot of times they don't know how to fully empty their bladder. And so if there's tightness in their abdomen region or in their hip flexor region, compressing the bladder and not allowing it to fully empty, 
or if their pelvic floor muscles don't relax when they're urinating, or there's might be a prolapse or something like that, which I know we'll get to um, later on, but that could be inhibiting the urine from fully escaping. And so now you're having urine trapped into the urethra and that urine is also harboring bacteria and it's just staying stagnant. So that's another reason. And so that's why I work alongside with their urologists. And so some physicians think, oh, we'll just give them estrogen cream. And so topical estrogen cream is a treatment, but it doesn't give the whole picture because it's helping with preventing future things uh, and making their muscles supple. But if the muscles all still tight while they're doing that, they're still going to have recurrent UTIs. So it's going to be working with having the topical estrogen cream or having hormone replacement therapy, but then also working on stretching out the muscles still to make sure that we're preventing any um, future issues. So what it sounds like is when someone sees you, you're trying to assess different possibilities of what could be causing it. It could be just diet. It could be, like you said, right. a, uh, some sort of prolapse, uh -huh. um, or it could be something that requires hormone therapy, but you're getting a, a better idea of what um, that, what those person's choices are or yeah. their bodies are going through. Exactly. And I'm asking for lab work too, you know, so I still look at their lab work. Do Is it something that they're going to need some estrogen? Mm -hmm. um, hormone replacement therapy, or maybe they need something else, right? So uh, I'm trying to get the whole picture. Got it. Organ prolapse. I think that's something newer that I've heard about in the past couple of years. I think, you know, no one, no women, women are not thinking about that when you're in your 20s and 30s. Can you de de uh, describe to the audience what exactly it is um, and how you know you would have it? And I know it depends on the organ as well. Yeah, so pelvic organ prolapse, so they will abbreviate as POP a lot of times, or POP, um, is pretty much when your bladder, your uterus, or your rectum, so those three are in one line, they are lined up in your pelvic bowl, and your pelvic floor muscles hold them up, right, along with some uh, ligaments. But what happens is one of those organs, the bladder, uterus, or the rectum, can sit a little bit lower. So they start to drop down a little bit and it creates a bulge. Um, it creates a bulge at the vaginal canal. So when it comes to pelvic organ prolapse, what's really important is that people may never know they had one and have one uh, or people may have a mild one and feel all the symptoms, right? So what I want people to understand is that it means that the organ is sitting in a different place than it normally was, but it doesn't mean that function or pain or anything like that can necessarily happen. Okay. So it's associated with tightness of the pelvic floor. That's when they're going to feel a lot more of the symptoms, right? So I have a patient with a grade three prolapse and the, the largest uh, grade is a grade four where it's coming out of the vaginal canal. Mm -hmm. uh, grade three is, you know, it's not coming out of the vaginal canal. It's just at the entrance. Grade two is just above that. And grade one is barely sitting low. But I have someone with a grade three and barely didn't know, never knew they had it. And then now I, I'm treating someone with a grade one and feels so much bulging, like everything they do, there's a bulge. Right. And so that's one of the ways they know they have one is when they feel like there's a bulge. 
Another part is they see a bulge, right? So that's when a lot of people have those issues um, and when they know they have an, a, a prolapse. But some women may have it and never have known they had it unless they're looking at their Wait, vaginal I, canal. I don't quite get. What do you uh, How would they see it? They, would they need a mirror to hold down? Yes, okay. you would need a mirror. <laughs> yep. And I actually encourage a lot of women, if not all women, to look at their vulva. Right. Because this is the this is what we should see. Right. Because think about men, their reproductive organs hang. So when they look yeah. in the mirror, they see it. It's all yeah. there. Women, yeah. we have to actually do a little bit of work. We have to position ourselves. We got to grab a mirror. We got to get yeah. into awkward positions sometimes. But it's so important because then we can get a lot of more understanding of our own bodies. And I think that's what we need to have. And so things like having a prolapse, they might see a bulge right? Actually see a bulge. Holding they might actually together. see a bulge. If you okay. see a bulge, then you're probably at a grade three. Okay. Or they may see a bulge when they're having a bowel movement or having urination because it's a that downward yeah. would pressure. They feel, would you feel the bulge if you're... You can feel it. Okay. And so again, it depends on what other symptoms are going on, mm -hmm. right? So things that can cause a prolapse is labor, right? Because they're pushing. And so yeah. that creates a downward pressure. Uh, a lot. Another part is also women who are very hypermobile. So they're very flexible. Mm -hmm. They can move more than others. They tend to have more, um, more be more susceptible to having the prolapse because the, our ligaments tend to be a little bit more uh, flexible. And so they're not holding up the organs uh, as securely. Uh, and then again, estrogen changes, right? So the estrogen is creating weakness at the ligaments or at our pelvic floor muscles, allowing those to drop a little bit more. But things that we can do to prevent it or to treat it are going to be, again, working on how we're contracting and how we're functioning in life, making sure we're not doing a lot of things that create a downward pressure. We're not doing too much. Uh, having too much constipation uh -huh. because all of that pushing, all of that is going to help, uh, is going to create more issues at our pelvic floor and create more of a downward pressure for a pelvic organ prolapse. I was wondering if a gynecologist, when you're having your annual exam, can they see that there's a prolapse? Yeah, they can. I, I think about it because even with my postpartum, it's not standard that they check. And okay. I don't know why. Um, so like even for the six-week check after having a baby, mm -hmm. they don't ever check for it. So I actually ask a lot of my women, uh, my, my clients to ask them to check. Or I just tell them, come to me and I check. Um, yeah. But even when it comes to women in menopause stage, I would ask their gynecologist to check, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's – and I'm not really sure on – I would love to talk to a gynecologist and see why it's they don't necessarily check as standard care. But I think a big part could be due to the fact that someone can have a large prolapse and not have any symptoms. So maybe they're thinking in their mind is like, I don't want to alarm them. Right. Mm -hmm. But in my head, I would love to know if I had it, even if I don't have symptoms to prevent it from getting worse. Right. So we can live with large grades and never, ever know but I would love to know so that I can prevent it from getting worse and things like that.
I was wondering, what are some things that I haven't covered uh, that you see a lot of postmenopausal women for that they come to see you? Uh, constipation. That That's one that a lot of people don't realize we can also treat. Mm-hmm. It's also a lot uh, one that is so important to check for or to be aware of in the menopause stage. Because when we are having healthy bowel movements, it, it allows for our hormones to be better regulated. Because when we have a healthy bowel movement, we're getting rid of excess estrogen and excess hormones that we don't need. It's also really important because it's, it gives us a sign for digestion. And digestion, a lot of menopausal women feel bloated all the time. And they're also worried about this weight gain. And if you're not having proper digestion and proper bowel movements, you're also going to have a lot of bloating and weight gain too. Also, constipation can create worsening symptoms for urinary leakage and for prolapse. It can also worsen pelvic floor tightness, which can worsen uh, intimacy too, right? So when I am looking at my clients, I'm always asking about their bowel movements, right? So a healthy bowel movement is two to three times a day, right? Especially in the menopause age. I actually have, I completed a menopause certification. And one of the physicians said that menopausal women should be having, should be having three uh, bowel movements a day, which is, it seems like a lot, but at the same time, I'm not against it because I think it's a good way of making sure that our digestion is working well. And mm-hmm. so many women I talk to, especially in the menopause stage, they don't realize that going every two to three days is not normal, right? And so oh, that's interesting. Okay. But yeah. they come to me because they're having urinary issues, yeah, pelvic pain or prolapse, but the fact that they're having so much constipation is not an issue for them. And that's very common for a lot of my clients is they don't realize that bowel movements is an issue. And so what they, yeah, they should know that it's a constipation issue if they don't feel empty after having their bowel movement. So they always feel like there's something there Yeah. or they're having to strain. Any amount of straining is not necessarily a healthy thing. Or the bowel comes out and it's very hard coming out, right? So any of those things, those are things that we can work on. Uh, Did I miss anything else um, that that you see commonly for postmenopausal women with your clients? If not, I have another question. (laughs) No, I think that's it. Okay. Uh, There is commonality between postpartum and uh, the hormonal changes that women have, perimenopause, menopause. Can you talk about what is common between those two, even though the ages are very different, but those two types of populations? Yeah. When it comes to postpartum and uh, perimenopause into menopause is the levels of hormones changes, right? And so estrogen is decreased in in postpartum, especially because if there's, uh, even if they're not breastfeeding, the milk is trying to come in, which would increase our prolactin levels. Our increased prolactin is an automatic decrease in our estrogen levels. And so it takes six months for those, for the prolactin levels to completely uh, leave our system 
in the postpartum stage or once we stop breastfeeding. So for during that entire time that they're breastfeeding or for the those six months after, they're still having a increased prolactin and decrease in estrogen. And so that's very similar in the perimenopause menopause stage because our estrogen levels are not in an adequate amount or they're not in an adequate ratio compared to our progesterone levels too as well. So what are some of the similar symptoms that a postpartum woman would feel with someone who is in perimenopause? Yeah. So it would be definitely vaginal dryness is a huge one. Oh, I didn't know that even for postpartum. Okay. Yeah. Vaginal dryness is a huge one. Mm-hmm. Um, and having the thinning of the, of the tissue mm-hmm. in our pelvic floor. So we tend to also be a little bit more sensitive to discomfort during intimacy or even during uh, examinations. Um, our, peer, our menstrual cycles are definitely not uh, regulated yet in the postpartum stage. Same thing in the perimenopause stage. Things start to get off. Um, and then just both doesn't matter what stage you're on the mental load that I think I believe that women hold is a huge is huge right and so in the postpartum stage we're ta- we're thinking about our babies our families and how we can create create that schedule and regulate everyone right in the perimenopause stage we're still thinking of our kids if we have children or we're now thinking about our parents right? And we're taking care of our parents, the mental load of that, especially then if you're hitting, let's say retirement stage, things like that, you're thinking about, you know, what your purpose in life is. And that happens in both postpartum. I've thought about that. And then also in obviously the perimenopause, menopause stage, at every point, we're thinking of our purpose in life, right? We're always trying to reevaluate. And I think all of that together creates a lot of tension into our pelvic floor and creates changes in our pelvic floor. That makes sense. My last question for you is insurance. In Europe, I know pelvic floor physical therapy is something that comes with being uh, postpartum. Is it normally something from what you see as a practitioner that's covered by insurance? Is it normally out of pocket? Yeah. So when it comes to insurance here in the States, If your insurance covers physical therapy, generally speaking, they will cover pelvic floor physical therapy. However, there are certain diagnoses that certain insurance companies will not cover. So then your clinician has to play a little bit of a game to make sure that they can figure out which diagnoses it can cover. So one that is the biggest uh, issue, it comes with dyspareunia, which means pain during intercourse or pain during penetration, right? So we can't put that as your diagnosis if we want insurance to cover it. The other fact is that you are, it is very challenging to find a pelvic floor physical therapist that covers that takes insurance because the reimbursement is very low and because of all the games that we have to play. So I worked in insurance for uh, years, for probably eight years, taking insurance um, at the hospital, but we're working longer hours. We're doing a lot of paperwork and we get also limited coverage. Mm -hmm. So, the insurance company has told me that I can only give a person three or four sessions, right? Or yep. six sessions. And 
um, it gets very exhausting. And we're also limited on how much time we can spend with you because of the volume that is needed and required for the hospital or the facility to make income. Right. Makes sense. I appreciate this insider view. Yeah. You know, I'm a big proponent of paying for physical therapy, the, the benefits instead of playing, trying to figure it out through insurance. The, the worst part is New York is actually one of the worst States for reimbursement. And so in those facilities, a lot of the ones that take insurance, they want to, they want you to see two or three patients. And they even wanted me to see two patients that are pelvic floor at a time. And what? I don't really know how I am was going to be able to do that and provide effective care. And so that's the other part that is unfortunate with our healthcare system. Yeah. Is that it just people don't get the care that they need. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I really want people to recognize are they actually having their physical therapist be able to spend the full amount allotted time with them? Or are they noticing that now an aide is now taking over their care who is unlicensed and just following a list that was provided to them? Because unfortunately, that's happening a lot throughout the United States. That even happens with uh, just traditional physical therapy. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe. You can also find me on my website, ironstrongfitness.net or follow me on Instagram at ironstrongfit. See you at the next episode.